Hold on and buckle up. You're about to ride into a place of theological sanity with Appalachian Anglican. Ecclesia Appalachia Missio Mundi. Welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Alien. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl. And today we're asking the question, what is a revival? What is an awakening? I thought we were going to talk about why revivals slash awakenings can be good. That's, I, that, that's going to come up within our conversation. I thought we were going oh. to talk about why revival tarries. Oh! Hashtag Leonard Ravenhill. Leonard Ravenhill. I will recommend, you know... I will recommend any of his books. Uh, I used to have every single one of them, but I don't anymore because I learned the mouth and they never came back. But you had Why Revival Terry's. He wrote, I want to say 1959. One of my favorite chapters in there is uh, chapter 20, Known in Hell, about the Apostle Paul. Then uh, Meet for Men in the early 60s. Then he wrote Sodom Had No Bible. And right around 1972... And the whole premise there being, if God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone, and they didn't have a gospel witness, what will he do to the United States, who's flooded with gospel witnesses? And then you had um, Tried and Transfigured, which was about prayer. It's an excellent book. Then you had Revival God's Way, which is the designated, designated successor to Why Revival Terry's. And he, he said later on uh, that there, it takes no, no moral courage to write a book. Think about that. You know what he would say today? It takes no moral courage to write a blog post. Yeah, no moral, no moral courage to, to grab a book off of your shelf and write your comments on a piece of paper and send it to a publisher. That's old Leonard Ravenhill. He's, his YouTube is flooded with his sermon clips uh, now, so I'd recommend anybody listen to Leonard. Um, Big, big revival guy. I, I, I do want to say, Josh, that we had planned on this topic the middle of January when we charted out the topics we were going to cover this year. So that was a full month before there was anything happening at Asbury or any of the other campuses across, um, across the United States. Or anything happening around the world, for that matter, that you know, you're seeing some of this footage about people saying revivals come to particular nations. I, I don't know what's going on there or not, uh, but all that to say, we had planned this well, at this point, what two months ago? It was a minute ago. Yeah. Yes, we we did. Yeah. So I, we do want to define what is what is revival. What is revival? What is the difference between revival? and awakening and outpouring and all the other various uh, semantics for this experience because that's fundamentally what it is because revival is not reformation those are not the same thing even though the words may be used that way they're categorically not the same thing so let me ask you what is revival and don't give me a technical definition yet. Like, before you, before you had studied, gotten ready for this episode, and someone had said to you, what is revival? What would you have said? I would have said size and impact uh, for geography and organizations between, like, uh, revival, awakening, and outpouring. And then well, length of time. Even before I started, that was my understanding. What about those things, though? 
Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. Oh, okay. I would have said the outpouring would have been like the smallest. Um, and then awakening and revival, I would have been a little bit more unable to articulate. Okay. Like those two would have been, because like, for example, like logically thinking, I was looking at all oh, the great awakenings. Those are large, mm -hmm. widespread across large geography and different groups and peoples. But my question is in relation to what revival, awakening, outpouring in relation to what, 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 what is, what is the baseline that you need revival, awakening or outpouring? The opposite of it. No. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> You have to define one to know how the opposite. What what is it? Is what I'm asking. Well, I would just, I, I, once again thinking back to the the awakenings, it would have been about uh, emphasis on personal conversion. It would have been a lot okay. of heart, heartfelt ideas. Heart, so okay, more so traditional evangelical ideology. Okay, like the OG, like not the. I'm an evangelical, like as in today, of a, a group of people, but more personal conversion, personal experience, not by itself, but typically that is felt and understood. Probably. Felt and understood in addition to other things, depending on your paradigm. Okay. How about you, Josh? Revival. In the best definition that I have in my heart and my mind, not looking at anything else. Okay. It is when someone who either through baptism or that have been become a part of the church somehow waned away from their faith in a certain capacity and these group of peoples they're brought to life again through the through the holy spirit in such a way that Ezekiel speaks about the dry bones coming to life okay so you would you would def, you would have defined revival as someone who had essentially grown cold in their faith and then were like the backslider came home, so to speak. Yes. Okay, like a prodigal son coming back. Yes. Okay. So revival in, in that sense, you would see it more as a as a as a restoration. Yeah, like they came back to what God started in the first place. Okay. Within it, them. Individual organizational. <clears throat> I think that could be definitely organizational more than it is individual. Okay. Because I, I, I mean, obviously it begins with every individual. Like God deals with individuals, but it always leads us to the organization, okay. the institution of the church. Okay. I know when I was pastoring in my Pentecostal context. See, I don't, that, that's a different question. If you had said, what did you think it was 10 years ago? That would have been a different answer than what even I gave you just now. Okay. 10 years ago, what was revival for you? Like hard felt like all this. We were in a series of services and the Lord was really moving. People were falling down and um, people, a lot of just speaking in tongues and chaos. And like you couldn't, but you wouldn't have seen door. it as chaos 10 years ago. No, I wouldn't have seen no. it as chaos. And you then couldn't if, even go to the mall without somebody falling out in the spirit. You know <laughs> if we're lucky during the service and we don't have to get to the pastor preaching, the, the spirit will fall so heavily during the worship set before that you, it was just. You don't, you don't even get to that. It is just nothing but prayer and singing. I had my second pastorate. I had a church one time. There was a, I won't say who it was. Someone in the church accused me of being a Methodist and meant it as a slam because I was insistent that there needed to be preaching in the worship service. There needed, we needed to preach. We couldn't just get together and sing and dance and stuff. You probably had a big smile on your face when you did this. You're like, well, I was kind of, no, I was kind of stunned because I, I stood there for a second and I thought, I, I don't know what that means. Uh, 
because I like John Wesley. <laughs> but uh, it wasn't meant as a compliment. But the irony is, I, I I don't know if he listens, and he'll know who I'm ta- he'll know I'm talking about him. I heard an individual ta- like calling someone a Methodist as a slam the other way. <laughs> oh yeah, because they were never too much of a revivalist. Yeah. Well, so this is why we want to spend some time talking about what this means, because in my Pentecostal churches, the word revival typically meant super duper worship service. It meant the hands were in the, raised in the air, and instead of flashlights, it was phone lights up in the crowd, you know, and the lights were dim and the fog machine was going, not the thurible, the fog machine was going. <laughs> uh, you go back before that became the big thing in the, Pente- the Pentecostal churches I was connected with, and it was, you know, the... Um, the senior saints, the, the the old ladies with their hair up in bobby pins who would start shaking their heads so aggressively while they were praying in tongues or, or dancing. The bobby pins would come out and the hair would fall down. And The sails, I like to call them the sails. Like, you know, the old lady, this happens to everyone. This is just human anatomy. Gravity it takes its effect in the arms. You know what I'm talking about? Like yeah. The skin would just be flopping. Well, I, yeah, yeah I, I'm not trying to go that, that route <laughs> because I think one of the dangers is, especially when people come out of places like that where the quote revival was more the enthusiasm of the people than the work of the spirit is then to denigrate the quickening works of the spirit when they happen. Right. And so you're not able to discern grace because you are resisting the, the over abuse so much that you can't see the legitimate anymore. And this is one, this is, that's a danger on the other side. But in, but in those classic traditional Pentecostal senses, revival was very much a series of meetings that saw a lot of people who had fallen away come back, saw, you know, people get rebaptized, which is not possible, but they would get rebaptized. Um, and it, it, it expanded from revival to awakening. And it, this never really happened. That would, it would translate into awakening in the biblical sense. But the revival would, or historical sense, I should say, the revival that goes outside of the local congregation and starts to have a bigger impact. Let me give you a classic example that is still recent in history, but it comes out of a traditional Pentecostal background, for those that that remember, was the Brownsville outpouring, as it came to be called, where the services happened almost every day. I mean, as it got to the four-year mark, it lessened a little bit. They weren't every day. Uh, but the services were essentially every day for about four years. And you had between 50 and 150,000 people give their lives to Christ in repentance uh, in those meetings. All right. And there was lots of other phenomena that took place. And, and, and people can argue about whether it was good or whether it was bad. And I don't think that those categories are necessarily the correct ones. I think it's better to look at something like that because I was down there. I, went, I was down there in 97. We got in line for the church service at like 6 a.m. for the 6 p.m. service, right? And one of the things that you discover really fast in environments like that is it in, in a certain sense, it doesn't matter what phenomena of the Holy Spirit, what gifts of the Spirit, what what presence is what presence of the spirit is manifest uh, what is driving a lot of it is the spiritual hunger of the people and one of the dangers that we can run into is when we take the spiritual hunger of the people and we make that in and of itself the definition of revival or awakening and that's not the case 
Jonathan Edwards, and we'll talk about him in more detail here in a minute. Edwards gives some very concrete specifics about um, things to look for to, to call it a, an awakening, to call it a revival. But I, I noticed there, at, you know, Brownsville went from being called a revival to an outpouring. And once everything blew apart down there, and they had a school of ministry, they had missions teams, they had... Um, Prayer meetings, I mean, a lot of very healthy things were going on, right? Um, but when it blew apart because of the unhealthy things, the response by many people in the church after it happened was they didn't want revival, quote, quote, anymore. They didn't like it. They got, it burned them all out. It, 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 it taxed and exhausted their emotional and physical capacities, now that speaks to something very specific that the scripture talks about at length and that church history makes specific accommodations for. Um, so we, we want to, I know we're taking a long time introing the idea, but I think it's because there's just such misunderstanding about what this stuff is and the categories of whether it's good or bad, I, I, we, we have to kind of eject that thinking and think more of it like in what ways is this healthy? Right. And in what ways is it uh, unhealthy? In what ways is it destructive? So let me, let me recall Edwards now, right? Edwards in talking about revivals and awakenings compares it to a river. And he says that there's no river that doesn't have mud in it. Meaning whenever the Holy Spirit does his natural work, what the Holy Spirit does, convicting the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When, when the Holy Spirit, and you know, regenerating through, through the labor of baptism, communicating to us the, the efficacy of the sacraments, etc. When the Holy Spirit heightens his work, when he, when he, when he works in a, in a quicker way, so, you know, um, uh, it's like when Jesus multiplies the food, when he feeds the 5,000, he takes what's there and then exponentially increases what is available. And so in, in genuine biblical renewal, revival, awakening, and outpouring, it's nothing contrary to the normal work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work expedited in its potency and in its, in, in its effect. Clear example is when Paul is in Ephesus. Paul goes to Ephesus, and he's there for just a couple years, but in that process of being in Ephesus, we get a massive, quote, revival. The, the people are coming out, and they're burning their magic books. Paul is, is, is uh, doing extraordinary miracles, or God's doing the extraordinary miracles through Paul, Luke says. There are churches that get planted all over the Lycus Valley outside of Ephesus, and, um, and then people seeing how effective Paul is, try to go cast demons out in the name of Jesus and Paul. That speaks to the communion of the saints, but we can't talk about that right now. Uh, <laughs> that, is, that is categorically, historically, what you could call revival. And it's, it's phenomenal, okay? But when, that doesn't happen everywhere Paul goes. When he goes to Philippi, yeah, he casts a demon out of a slave girl, but the man gets beaten and put in chains and gets just a handful of converts. Or when he goes to Athens and there's almost nobody that converts. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't working through him 
and those other places. No, it doesn't mean that at all. In the Philippi case, he's there specifically because of a vision in the night of a man saying, come and help us. So revival is not something contrary or something antithetical in opposition or something that exceeds the parameters of grace. It is the exponential increase of what grace accomplishes through its regular pace. If we start with that definition, then we can start to, to judge and evaluate how quickly, or to use Edwards, keep using Edwards' metaphor, we can start to look at how muddy is the river. And so if the river's too muddy, guess what we don't want to do? We don't want to swim in it. It's just not, it's, it's, good, it's a mudslide. It's not actually a healthy river that's giving life. It's, there's too much flesh in it. There's too much carnality in it. I think that's a good way to begin this discussion. And the only, one of the only things I know growing up in a Pentecostal church is what I would hear all the time, not that definition of revival as you flesh that out, but the revival that Adam was talking about, which is, oh, we're going to have a revival. There's revival coming. There's revival coming. So you had all out of us who grew up like that. You would hear that all the time. You get saved every every other week when they have the services. Maybe so. <laughs> I mean, but I, I just like I just remember hearing that all the time and I wasn't didn't ask a whole lot of questions when I heard that a lot, but I always pondered, you know, everywhere I go, that's what that's the only thing they want to say. Well, that's part of revivalistic culture. And that is a detriment and that is a dangerous thing. Revivalism and revivalistic culture is always looking for the next revival. And so it takes and reads scripture through that paradigm and in the process really misinterprets it. So you don't have times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord because you're living a regular life of faithfulness. You have revival apostasy, revival apostasy, revival apostasy. You, you become spiritually bipolar. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you that's get. That's about accurate. Yeah, and everything becomes interpreting like the passage in Chronicles about if my people turn from their sin and acknowledge their wicked way, then I'll look from heaven and I'll heal their land as a means for revival. Because regular rhythms of life are seen as less or subpar right. to God's best, right. which fails to understand the natural goodness of creation and good, healthy spiritual living regularly. The, the biblical effect of revival, and one of the ways to determine whether or not a revival slash awakening slash outpouring is legitimate, if it's truly heaven sent, is that it produces lives of discipline that walk in regular common grace. You cleave more to Christ in the sacrament of the Eucharist. You're insistent upon living out your baptismal vows. You want to be near to the Lord Yes, in the warm feelings of your heart, but you don't do that outside of the, the visible confines of the church. In fact, you start to press for more unity and union within the church. Um, one of the effects of revival is that men and women will get married and have children and raise their children in the covenant. That's one of the effects of revival. If revival is, I was spiritually moved, or Take spiritual out for a moment. I was, I was effectively moved. I had some moving emotional experience that doesn't translate in a more pronounced kind of discipleship. It wasn't really a work of the Spirit, not the Spirit of God anyway. It's something else. And we don't believe 
that the the one of the principal works of the devil is to usurp the role of the Holy Spirit, the role of the Lord Jesus, and to present the enthusiasm as a work of the kingdom. Like he does this all the time. He's been doing it since the beginning. You know, you're going to hear of, of false Christs and uh, the Lord says, and then Paul talks about the spirit of lawlessness that comes with all kinds of lying signs and wonders. This is real. And you will never get those kinds of lying signs and wonders in churches that don't believe that God does miracles anyway, because they don't, they don't believe like that. There's a different, um, a different diabolic influence they, they will fall under. But for those who believe in awakening, there's always the danger of the false. And you need to be discerning. So you, you've got to approach everything that you hear about in what's called revival or awakening with wisdom and with faith. It's true. And I think until we start looking at it from other perspectives, it's, it's really difficult to truly get a grasp on it. Like, for example, me and Josh both served in the Army. Correct. So you sure? We did. Okay. We did. Uh, yes. <laughs> I, just had, I just had my last drill. New uh, Army, who? Yesterday. So, you know, anyways, but we both went through basic training. And so during that time, we were, there was a lot of uh, hard work, a lot of discipline, and there's a lot of just um, enthusiasm. I mean, you want to hear a lot like uh, uh, just a, a company of motivated trainees. Let me tell you, there's loud and thunderous, and you can hear it for probably about a quarter mile away. There's nothing more motivating like, than going to the chow hall, okay? Like, it, it, <laughs> was, really it, was, it was life-changing, you know, so we were enthusiastic. There was, there was effectual change. If we use the same standards of that being revival, then that means basic training is revival. Yeah. Like, it's it just, when you start, what I'm saying is when you start to attach and bring those ideas over to other things that are emotionally charged events that cause change, it doesn't have to be from the Lord anymore. And I'll tell you one thing, a lot of the stuff that happened at basic training, that was not the Lord. Um, is that but, true, uh, Josh? I can't testify to Adam's basic training, <laughs> but I know there was a lot of things that went on. Uh, there was ungodly. There, you know what? Yes. There, there was a lot of evangelism that went on in my basic training. Okay. okay. But, but but what I'm saying is we a lot of times we that's just one example, and I do that because it's obvious that what's happening there isn't a work of the Lord. And a lot of times we we look at that, and I know my paradigm growing up. If I would have thought, hey, let me think of something else that has the same effect and the same emotions. And I'm, I'm categorically putting it in this category. Oh my, it would have changed the way I thought about it. But until I stepped out of it, I didn't, I wasn't able to do that. Yeah. I mean, and this brings up the other point that you always make, you don't make it the same way every time, but it's like why people think when they go to a, like a Def Leppard concert or <laughs> fill in the blank of the concert <laughs> and they feel deep feelings and emotions, they get that conflated with some of the other stuff. I, I would probably use Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer more than Def Leppard. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, I was safer. just trying to think of a classic rock yeah. band. Well, I mean, he, they, get, they get, you know, swung out over the crowd on ropes and they cry out to God, you know, and they raise their hands in prayer. And, yeah. And you know. old men talk about that time back then I was at that concert. It was a great experience, but yeah. like they'll talk about it for years to come. Well, so, I mean, those, one of the those guys are not young anymore. No, well, one of, that's well, why like old, this, old specifically. We can actually situation. make this bridge into the great, the first great awake, first great awakening. Yes. So the, the impact that I, upon my research that I looked at or just looked around at is during the time where the, where this great awakening was happening, people were actually repenting. 
I would say, or coming. Well, you want to make sure that you, you're right. There's repentance, but you make sure that you're tying together the great awakening here in, in the American colonies right. with the great evangelical awakening in the UK. Yeah. So I did, I'm not going that far to the UK awakening. I'm just speaking about here in America in the, that context, the first great awakening. But you can't separate them is my point it, because Whitfield, who's the, one of the principal preachers in the great awakening here in the colonies began preaching in Bristol yeah. in England. And he was one of the Methodists with Wesley and the Wesley brothers. Well, those the two of the brothers and a whole series of other guys. And they were called Methodists as an, as a, as an insult, the Holy club, the Bible moths. That's what they called them because these guys took the religion seriously. They took faith seriously, but it's, uh, Wesley and Whitfield both in different ways at different times have a heartwarming experience. They have a personal conversion. Um, when Wesley's going back and forth with uh, the Moravian Peter Bowler, he says to him, is the Lord your, uh, who is your, is the Lord your savior, savior? And John Wesley says, yes, Christ is the savior of the world. And his response is, but he is, is he yours? Because at that point, Wesley was already a priest, already teaching Greek, already been on mission to, to Georgia, I think. Uh, because that's why he goes to Georgia is to convert the, the Native Americans. And he writes in his journal when he's coming back into to port in England, I went to convert the heathen, but who will convert me? Because he recognized there was something that was missing. Right. And, and as, he's, as he's on a boat coming into England, while Whitfield's on the boat heading over for the first time. And he makes like seven trips across the Atlantic. And these guys were high churchmen in, in the full sense of the term and um, fully, fully adhering to the rubrics and the forms of the prayer book, insistence upon the Eucharist, the, the lay preachers couldn't celebrate the sacraments. I mean, they were very much, that's who they were. When they start to preach repentance, they're taking all of that that has made them what they are and they're, they're proclaiming it in a way that's calling people to repent. In Whitfield's case, it's his being in the colonies that affect renewal on a whole other level because the parish system doesn't exist the same way that it does in England. And Wesley crosses parish boundaries when he says, the world is my parish. I, I, I think it would have been well if one of the bishops could have told John, no, you, you, you can't do that like this. But that's a different topic, different discussion. But it speaks to one of the destructive powers of revivalism is that it disregards form for the sake of experience. Right. And, that, and, and that's what I was going to highlight is one of the impacts that came out of it was unintentional, of course. It, they called it emotional revivalism. Yeah. Where fanaticism. Yeah. Where, yeah. Where people like this doesn't isn't to say that people didn't legitimately have experiences with the Lord during these moments and times or that led them to repentance. But there are people that had that alone, that experience as the marker of every time, like in the, the higher that experience, right? particularly with their emotions. Right. Then the, Ro more, the more legitimate and sincere it is. Yeah. Yeah. R relate what you're saying there with the English mystics. What were those people? But not, they were experienced, but no one looks back at them and says, well, they, that was revival. Even though when people use the word revival today, that's what they're talking about. It's when you get, you know, 70 or 1,500 people, however big the crowd is, that come down to the front and have some sort of mystical experience gathered around the platform while the band's playing. 
I, which is antith- that's the exact opposite of the mystics. They did not do that because of all of the dangers that are in that kind of kind of uh, environment. And I'm not saying don't go to big prayer meetings and, and, and worship the Lord. I, please hear we're not saying not to go do that. I know people who would say that, but you've got to know what you're, what you're experiencing and what terms you're using. So, I mean, Edwards talks about genuine repentance. He talks about a stronger life of prayer. He talks about more uh, stable spiritual disciplines. And then you can come on further out to, to um, other people who've processed the material here to, to, to assess it correctly. Awakenings is when you start to see the transformation in the culture. The culture starts to adopt Christian worldview and perspective. The culture, even if it doesn't become converted, comes under an active influence of the church and starts to abide by its cultural mores. Or its cultural, its, its moral expectations, I should say. And there's ways that happens through history. Sometimes through spiritual renewals, like we're talking about. Other times because the empire converts. The king converts, and now suddenly he makes the laws of the land the laws of the gospel. Constantine did that in part. Uh, Charlemagne does that in part. Um, you know, you, you, get, you get this through Christian history. I mean, look at the United States and how many of our laws are st- were still very much rooted in a Judeo-Christian ethic. And when we talk about the falling away of the, of the Western culture here in the past 80 years, that's typically the rejection of those traditional Judeo-Christian values, which feeds in the minds of revival-thinking folks why there needs to be another revival to fix it, because they look at the revivals, the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, and some would say the Third and the Fourth, and I, I think both of those two are, are not, I, I would steer away from those. Um, but they look at those as the, as the things that created what in their minds is kind of like a, an American or a Western exceptionalism. And I think you're missing, you're missing so much of what's going on. Um, I mean, you can't revive something that was never Christian, that was never really part of the kingdom. That's not revival. That's a different animal. That's, uh, that's like a re-evangelization. Uh, and we haven't even talked about, the, and not directly anyway, the corollary between revival and awakening and evangelism, because that has to be together as well. So the funny thing is, if you look at these awakenings, these across America, across the UK that we know of, I mean, is it coincidence that I just thought about this right now? Like you have in America, like the first great awakening happened in around like 1720 to like 1750-ish. Uh, then the next one was, that's pre-Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was pre-Civil War. Mm-hmm. Is that coincidence or is it just, you know? No, I mean, like revival that? historians look at the First Great Awakening as creating the cultural climate for the American Revolution. And then you have those who look at the Second Great Awakening, which is even more divisive than the first, because Charles Finney did not believe in original sin. And so people look at Finney's essentially Pelagian um, doctrine about human nature and say the man's a heretic. So everything he did was, wasn't, was not right. I, I don't know about that. Uh, obviously, I disagree with, with Finney on that point. But to say that the Holy Spirit didn't bring about a lot of conversions and that the Spirit of the Lord didn't bring many people to repentance, I think, again, is 
misidentifying the complexity of what's going on. But yes, that the Second Great Awakening created the template for a, a, a robust evangelicalism that fought the slave trade and fought in the United States anyway, and then uh, ushered in the, the, the Civil War. Yeah. In my mind, I don't think it's coincidental. When I look at the men from the First Great Awakening, how they were men of discipline, mm -hmm. and yet at the same time, out of that discipline, the Lord called them in that personal conversion and that personal conversion did not alleviate that call to discipline right rather fueled it correct and everyone who followed them he called the same expected the same of them like you especially like you look at wesley and I, there's a lot of stuff he does i don't agree with but there's a lot of stuff he does that i do agree with and you look at the guys who ran with him Mm -hmm. in order to hang with the kind of discipline that he had. And the other ones aren't any different. You look at Jonathan Edwards, he's a brain. Yeah. I mean, just a brain with legs and happens to, you know, be able to talk. Like Whitfield, I, these, these men are, are disciplined in the way that they live their life and the, the practices that they are bringing in. And they're right in step with liturgical life. Yeah. It, I don't, I think many times we put these two ideas in juxtaposition when they shouldn't be rather a, a life of revival or a time of those great emotional awakenings and ex emotional experiences do not have to sit contrary to a disciplined life. Rather, they should fuel it. And, and the irony is that's how they're pitted against each other. And it doesn't make any sense because historically it, it's not true. Well, let me go further back in Christian history and look at Augustine of Canterbury when he sent by Gregory the Great, whose feast day was this past Sunday. Augustine gets to Kent, and we we have a little bit of information. I mean, we got a decent amount for as far as historical records go. But one of the more significant notes is when Gregory writes a letter to, I believe, the Patriarch of Constantinople and says that there have been 10,000 conversions he reports 10,000 conversions, baptisms, from Augustine's mission in England when he's writing to Constantinople. Um, this is a few years after Augustine gets there. So there are revivalists who will look back at that and they'll say, revival historians, and they'll say, look, there's revival. And then there are other revival revivalists who will say, no, it's not revival. Those people only got baptized because the kings did, their, their, their tribal leaders did. They didn't really actually convert. They just got baptized. You see the problem right away. Baptism is united, being united with Jesus. And those, the, the people then didn't have the kind of hyper-individualism that, hyper that we have right now. Someone forgot to give Luke that cue when talking about Cornelius and his household. Right, right, you know. right. Um, well, there's an example, right? So David Brainerd is one of the guys who's... Um, active in the era of the First Great Awakening. And he's 29 when he dies from tuberculosis. He was almost the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, but uh, Brainerd died before he could marry um, his daughter, Edwards' daughter. Brainerd is speaking to a group of Native Americans the night after they've had a powwow. So most of them are hungover. And this is in the, the, the diary. As Brainerd is just sharing the gospel with them, some kind of invisible wind, he's, he describes, comes through... Uh, and blows over on all the people, and they buckle down like they collapse and start speaking in tongues. 
the, the experience stops and they get up and like, what was that? Then they give, you know, they profess faith in Christ and go on to get baptized. There's an example of Cornelius's house and there are people that will say, well, see, they got filled with the Holy Spirit before they even got saved. Well, guys, if you stick with the sacramental definition of the church, you can rightly see prevenient grace there that's poured out in a, in a very charismatic way as an indication that God is pulling those people to himself, just like you see in Cornelius's house. But does that entrance into the covenant in an extraordinary way, one, become the ordinary normal means for most people? No. Does it become the thing that you pursue instead of the regular sharing of the gospel that causes people to repent and prepare for baptism to be brought into the church? No. But what do we do in revivalism? Yeah. It's exactly what we it do. It makes, because that, that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about specifically how, while there were so many things that happened that were positive within the First Great Awakening, that there was a lot of almost reduction of some of the, or reduction of, okay, well, we can do this in these extraordinary means, and we don't have to ascribe to the dis disciplines of prayer and all these different things. We don't have to go to church in certain ways. We don't have to uh, subscribe to the sacraments. Right. Right. I mean, th and it was such a big deal in the days of Edwards. He writes a book called Religious Affections. I mean, he's got to write about this. Um, what happens, I think, in American culture is that we do become a revivalist culture. We're very revivalistic. And so much so that if, and, I, and I've heard this for years, uh, pastoring in a variety of contexts, if the regular worship services and the normal growth and development of people is happening in a healthy way in a church, but there's not particular kind of phenomena, that church is spiritually dead. It's not spiritually dead if the people are hearing the word of God and they're being incrementally changed and conformed into his image. It's very much spiritually alive and it's a very healthy place. In fact, if God decided to visit that place with his extra charisms, and there's been good discipleship there, the probability that it could receive and retain particular charisms and graces is far beyond that of a church who just has, even if that church has five years of what we call super-duper worship services, five years of awesome outpouring and power, but then there's nothing after it. There's nothing but a wasteland. And this is not a critique I'm, I'm offering as a, as a priest. It's something that when I was a Pentecostal, my Pentecostal buddies who were mature, spiritually mature in these points, understood it. And so, you know, you, as a Pentecostal pastor, if you've got a good revivalist or a good evangelist coming in to preach a series of meetings for you, he's going to ask, what have you been working on? What's the Lord been doing here? I don't want to get in the way. I just want to come in and help and serve the church. But you get some of these fellows, they look at revival as this, the double-edged sword. They're going to come in and they're going to clean the church up. And you, you get that person who's like, I want the prophetic word of God so I can rebuke all the church. Well, sit down, you son of thunder. You can't, you can't have that without submitting to leadership. In a yes, positive, you can. You can, you can bounce from church to church, create and stir up agitation, and create a bunch of false that's, movings that's of the Holy schism Spirit. schism and division, Correct. Yeah, but it happens all the time because who actually disciplines that in their churches? You just mentioned discipline in some churches and that some of that, some of that doesn't exist. So I'm just going <laughs> to go back up just a little bit. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting because you hear a lot of people talking about those um, churches that are just like, I don't want to use the word normal, 
but there you have people that are just acting in the regular well the regular functions of the church and we, we look at that as like a bad thing yeah. like they're healthy like people are having kids their kids are growing, growing up in the church and they're 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 staying in church like we act like that's a bad thing and yeah. it's nothing like that was happening before the great awakening because before the first great awakening they were literally writing things in church membership to allow these kids who had been baptized as infants but had no personal conversion and were not involved in the life of the church like we're not talking about the same thing but mm. to me and i and i look at this and once again i i can't help but my my background especially my you know military background coming in is that there's something about the mundane discipline day in and day out for a long extended time that i think i would take that 10 times 20 times over just the the spurt like the quick up quick down quick up quick down it just if it we had revival doesn't make any sense if we in quote quote revival or awakening hit our local parish do you know what it would result in Take a guess, Josh. What would it result in? More than two 6 a.m. prayer meetings? Yeah. We'd have morning prayer, and people would be beaten down the door to get in here for morning prayer. People would be coming for evening prayer. People would be drawing near every time we have the Eucharist, which is a few times a week here. They'd be getting, like, people would be getting together to pray and seek the face of God. That would be the result of the revival. And I tell you what another thing is, their kids would stay in the church. They wouldn't apostatize. They wouldn't fall away. Because they would be connect, they would be loving the Lord with their hearts already. Now, if we know that that is the effect of revival, discipline, spiritual discipline, good, healthy discipline, not sour-faced Phariseeism, but good spiritual discipline, which is both observant and celebratory. If that is the effect of revival, why do we not just choose to do it now? and that experiences experience the graces God wants to give through the regular discipline. And we, it's not that we can't, it's that people won't because they've been programmed the wrong way with revivalism. Yes. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. And then the other thing is, kind of, kind of going forward here, speaking about Jonathan Edwards, I think I've definitely learned a lot by just looking into his life. He was very, and all the ministers of that time they were so meticulous. They didn't just extemporaneously, most of the time, didn't ex they didn't extemporaneously. I'm going to say this one more time. Extemporaneously? Sorry. Got, most of the time, they didn't extemporaneously preach sermons off the top of their head. Right. So they literally had to write the entire thing out yep. and study. And the majority of stuff going on in here in America, that isn't the norm. Well, this takes us into... The Second Great Awakening, moving into the middle of the 1800s, where uh, preaching, in the sense of reading from your manuscript, turned into what they called prophesying, where you would exhort. So you would speak um, with unction. You would speak without, you know, reading from your manuscript. That then goes on to foster in the negative side. There's some positives to it, because I preach like that all the time. Uh, plenty of people I know that do, but it's not that we don't study. It's it's the different way that the the charism is at work in you. Um, but one of the things that, that starts to happen in the 1800s in this revivalism is you get restorationism. It's the restoring of the gifts that no, no 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 that's not restorationism. Okay, sorry, wrong word. Restorationism is that the church fell into apostasy. 
right around the time of the death of the Apostle John or sometime, like I mentioned Gregory the Great. No, the church was already dead and gone by then. They were in the Dark Ages, baby. They, they had fallen away altogether. So we've got to restore it. We've got to restore the church. The biggest Christian cult that made use of that ideology that has been used by almost every Christian denomination since are the Mormons. And so in Mormonism, it's the restoration of Christianity that died and ceased to exist and had to be brought back through revivals. If you read the Doctrine and Covenants, which is one of the books by the Latter-day Saints, they talk about wind blowing, running, clapping, speaking in tongues, prophesying, and healing happening in all of their meetings as evidence that their doctrine was right. Their doctrine specifically being polygamy, the Book of Mormon itself, and some of the other things that they, they were involved in. It's called restorationism. Many of the denominations that were born, that were created as a result of the Second Great Awakening, share in the same ideology. A lot of the Pentecostal, Neo-Pentecostal, and Charismatic denominations that have formed since the early 1900s have the same ideology. And that ideology says that there really functionally wasn't a church. It died and had to be restored. That isn't just heterodox. That's heretical. Now, what is heterodox? Heterodox is something that is a, a, a deviation of standard practice. It's a deviation of, uh, of orthodox practice. It's, it's a violation of um, something. It's an error, but not the kind of error that causes you to lose the faith. Heresy is something when you're in danger of losing the faith. Restorationism is, depending upon the other factors in what's being restored, can, goes from heterodoxy to heresy pretty fast. But it, the, the danger, one of the principal dangers as we're talking about it now, is it's rooted in awakenings. It's rooted in a revivalism that's disjointed from the rest of the church so that it creates its own church, its own ministers, and its own subset and tertiary doctrines that in the same breath of creating new doctrines destroys the need for the creeds and what's been uh, agreed upon by the church in consensus. Do you think that sort of progression in history as, it, as that happened, with, from the first awakening to the second could also be because in the same time the first awakening was happening here in America and in the UK, right? We had uh, the Enlightenment going on too. Is that an impact of that, or is that something completely different? I'm just asking off the um, top of my head. I, <clears throat> I think I don't think there's really a way to uncross or unpollinate that. They're not identical by any stretch. But is there an influence on it? Sure, there is. I mean, it's like having a discussion about spiritualism that becomes super popular in the late 1800s and is very popular in the United States till you know, around the 1930s. Um, and how spiritualism, like how many Presbyterians were engaged in spiritualism, even though they're denominationally cessationist, meaning there's no communion of the saints that you have any kind of interaction with. But if I remember correctly, the Ouija board came from a Presbyterian minister, right? That is correct. Yes. Yeah, the Ouija board, Ouija, the use of Ouija's and stuff came from um, a lot of people, but Presbyterian, there was a Presbyterian minister very involved with it. It's not an accident when you look at the rise of spiritualism and then the Pentecostal movement. Like they're coming out of the same vein of history, 
even though their approach and their practices are different. Right? So can you, there's pollination there because they're dealing with the same things. They're, they're a response to the same things. But one is trying to anchor itself in Scripture while the other is just you know general spiritualism. It's not trying to be in Scripture at all, even if it wants to cherry-pick some verses. So I don't know... I know the Enlightenment has, a, has an impact on the first and second great awakenings, right? Especially modernism has an impact on those things. Um, but I, I, I don't... I think in some ways the fanatic, as they would say, or the emotive nature of revival and awakening at the time was in response to the cerebral uh, rationalism, to the cerebral enlightenment. But you'll get guys who are, who are part of that enlightenment philosophy who don't, really, who don't believe in God. They're agnostics at best. They'll go listen to Whitfield, and they'll give the man money because they're just impressed at how good a preacher he is. And because he you know, yeah. was raising up orphanages and stuff to care for kids. Yeah, which that was an amazing thing. George Woodfield planted a lot of orphanages here in the United States. And one of the more, his more famous ones, the Bethesda House or something like that. I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, Whitfield, Whitfield's record is one of the greatest preachers in Christian history. The man says in his journal when he went to preach in Bristol that the people were packed into the chapel so much that their breath condensed on the ceiling above him and rained down as drops of, of, of water. And he said, and God gave me unction. So I can only imagine what that preaching was like from him when he says God gave him unction. <laughs> so, yeah, that was one of the things. Unfortunately, I mean, fortunately, in a good way, I came across George Whitfield in the study of the First Great Awakening as well. And they talked about how um, George Whitfield came to the understanding of some of his sermons. And legitimately, all of it was prayer. The man in, in one spot in his journal, matter of fact, he only published one volume of his journal because when he heard people were reading that more than scripture, he stopped writing them. But in one, one of the passages there, he talks about how he laid underneath the tree for three days in prayer. We can't, we can't pray 10 minutes. My man Woodfield, three days underneath the tree. <laughs> Go just, for it. Yeah. Go you for know, it, Georgie. Woodfield came underneath a lot of, I feel like, more, almost more scrutiny than anyone else did. One of the reasons was, I mean, how he preached, mm -hmm. like in where he preached, yeah, and then the money that he was raising. Because we talked about the the impact, him and the money he was able to, the money he was able to raise got him to cause to grab the attention of uh, Benjamin Franklin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not because they agreed on anything, and uh, Franklin openly admitted that Whitfield was praying for his salvation. And he reminded him often that it was not working. <laughs> right. um, but he said, essentially, Franklin's remarks were, I know where to find money. I know where there's profit to be found. Yeah. And so he was bringing a lot of money. You know, but there's a lot of different things that, you know, he was underneath a lot of scrutiny. These guys, it just didn't happen. And everybody in all the culture and all the church were like, yes, I agree with oh, you. No, this they, is what we yeah, needed. Yeah. It was controversial. Right. How they were, like, the idea of, preaching outside of Sunday morning in the way that they were preaching. And ironically enough, the, the critiques they had, because you brought up modernism and uh, the Enlightenment, was very much so. I mean, the modernism was a way that they were... Mm -hmm. you're, you're, you're seeing that very much so in the way that they're constructing their sermons, even, and how they're providing proof. But they're like, you're, you're not... 
this is crazy. This is a, this isn't reasonable enough, and there's too much emotionalism, and you're you're like savages in a field, and it's not on Sunday morning in a church. You're doing this at other times other than in a church. What yeah. in the world is wrong? There was a lot of critique. These guys, it was very controversial what they were doing. It wasn't well accepted Wesley, by everyone. Whitfield prevailed upon Wesley, John Wesley, to preach outside. And in his journal, Wesley calls it vulgar, a vulgar practice to preach outside of the church. I want to say even Whitfield talks about it as he himself calls it like vulgar, like preaching. Like yeah. he, he admits that. Well, it's a big jump, right? It's a big step when Wesley goes from this is vulgar to a few years later when they ask him, why do people come watch you preach? And he says, because I set myself on fire and they come and watch me burn. Woodfield was by far the better preacher, but that's something Wesley said. Well, you get these guys out in front of the coal mines because they would get together for morning prayer, celebrate the Eucharist, read some writings from the fathers of the church, and they would go preach. And so, you know, you got these accounts where Wesley's preaching, and it's all through his journals and the newspaper. I mean, it's written everywhere. And before he, he gets done, and people have fallen to the ground, not like one or two, but dozens, you know, or hundred. I think one case said 1,500 people collapsed to the ground, shaking and convulsing under the weight of their sin in repentance. Think about it. They're not collapsing and shaking and crying out to God for mercy because of the wonderful blessings that he's going to give them, which is what's happening in a lot of revival preaching since. No, they're repenting of their sins. Then they're joining small groups to be more thoroughly discipled, and they're going to, to services every Sunday to receive Christ in the Eucharist. I mean, that's, that's good. That's a good thing. I do think that's a key distinction that you bring up about that. The, great, the first great awakening is that they were, like, you hear them awakening. It wasn't like this awakening to just personal conversion. That personal conversion involved repentance of sin. Yes. Like, you, you read the right... Like, if if you're reading their writings and you're quoting them and you're talking about awakening and it's sin is not in that quote, then I can tell you is either in the paragraph right before it's in the paragraph right after because everything comes down to repentance from sin because you cannot yep. have an experience with a holy God and walk away the same in your sin or being okay with your sin or not being moved to change it. You can't do it. And they understood that you very read, well. You read their sermons, and they're freely available to anybody. Whitfield, Edwards, the Wesleys, Charles Wesley's hymns. You will see a direct confrontation with the spirit of the age and the powers of the world. I mean, John Wesley preached at St. Mary's in Oxford that the ordained should be taught of God. And the man laid such a heavy hammer on the people you know, prepping for, for holy orders that they, they never invited him back. <laughs> it's funny we don't sure. do that we preach so we get invited back I, I that that kind of stuff reminds me of leonard ravenhill yeah you know ravenhill said one time he was interviewed um he said no i don't go to every invitation i get to preach and the, and the interview the interviewer was like what do you you know what do you mean he says well no i pray about it because everything i say in front of god's people i've got to give an account for in the day of judgment i don't want more to give an account for if he's not sending me to preach <laughs> <laughs> If we had more of that reserve in us, that sense of gravity and weightiness about what we do on the, on the regular, I mean, Scripture says, the Lord says, we're going to be condemned by our idle words. How much more those that are standing before the people of God to preach the Word of God? Yeah, and I know, I know we focus a lot thus far on, like, the first great awakening. I think part of that is because it is clearly mm -hmm. what is happening there, and 
how it's being used and even the effects of it. Uh, it's it's. You hear a lot of people arguing, well, was the second great awakening really one? We, you look it up and there's, you say there's a third and there's a fourth. And there, there's a lot of argumentation back and forth, even on two, three, and four. Right. Um, on whether or not they were actually classified to that or if they, if they really even happened in actuality. The first, I don't think there's a way around it. Uh, it, it truly, like what is happening there um, and, and the effects of what it does with the people. I think it's hard I mean, to get well, away I, from. You can't really argue with it. I've read um, uh, a good bit of Finney. It's been a years ago, but I've read a good bit of Finney. And he talks about when he had his encounter with the Holy Spirit and then how he started to go out and to preach repentance. And the people would, would you know, like there's one account where they're, he's at a mill, I think, sharing the gospel. And, and the woman he's speaking to falls from her seat and starts to repent and cry out to God. There's lots of stuff that comes from Finney and from some of the other preachers of the Second Great Awakening, that is repentance-based. It is. I mean, it's it's very good. Yes. No. But then you get you get some mud. You you get some real serious mud. Does that mean that there wasn't a river? No. It just means you don't be so open-minded that your brain falls out, and you don't be so closed-minded you never learn. So you take it into consideration what you're looking at. I think the Third Great Awakening, and we could obviously talk about. Uh, the second, much more so, especially beyond Finney. Um, because, uh, you know, we could do that. But I, I think the third and the fourth are hard to be classified as awakenings. The fourth, for those who aren't familiar, they, they look at the Jesus people as an awakening. Well, um, I, I don't. Uh, well, because think about it, if the first great awakening becomes your standard for an awakening, and I realize that sometimes things like far exceed the standard. Yeah. But if that becomes the line, the toe, that's a hard, uh, not that people's lives weren't changed. We meet, it's, you meet people. Yeah. And, you know, in our churches today that were affected by that. And, sure. We have some in ours. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I saw it, the Jesus Revolution movie. It was a great movie. I think there's a lot more to the kingdom. And I would change the title. But I as far as Jesus movies Revolution. go, it was it was a really I enjoyed it. I, I mean, Jesus it, it was movement. a fun movie. I, I I went there and I watched. It. I was like, man, that's great. You know, like uh, anyway, I, I'm not going to critique the movie, but I I enjoyed it. And if you want to watch just a good wholesome movie that's not a Christian movie on the end times, that's a good one. You know, I mean, it's a good one to watch. Um, but let me let's close this out because I want to talk about what's happened at Asbury a little bit because I am a graduate from the seminary. And in 2000, and I finished, um, I tried to go in 2003, but I couldn't. And there was no online stuff yet. So I was able in 2011 to begin. And then I, I did like a year and I had to stop. And then resumed again in 2000, the end of 13. And I moved out there in 14 uh, and went full time. Well, more than full time, really, uh, you know. From the end of 2014 until the end of 2016, when I finished. Well, 2016, there was a man from Malaysia who came out that I met, and he was coming to our morning prayer meetings. We had Anglican morning prayer there at the seminary, and um, he was from Malaysia, and he told us that the Lord told him to move to Wilmore, which is where the seminary and the college are, to pray for revival. And I said, well, that's great. That's great. Um, and Wilmore, for those who don't know, is a town that has two stoplights in it. 
There's one grocery store, Fitch's IGA. It's been run by the same man since 1950-ish something, right? There's one Dollar General. There's one little Chinese restaurant. And there is a gas station that sells fried chicken and a Subway. That's it. If you drive through the one main road through town and you keep going for five for 10 minutes, you get to the end of that road. It literally dead ends at a canyon. And in that canyon are bat caves in the cliffs. I mean, there's nowhere to go if you drive straight through town, right? It's very, very small. And um, so when, when uh, he, he said that, you know, they were praying, he was sat there to pray for revival. I said, that's great. You know, so I got, we get back here, get the church going, plant the church. And um, was his, had been his, I've been his friend, his friend on Facebook, you know, since then. Uh, real, I think since 2016. Anyway, but he would be, he'd post these photos or people would post photos of him on the seminary, you know, alumni page of him walking around with these big signs, revival or bust, you know, come Holy Spirit, all this kind of stuff. And I would think that the man's going after it. He's, he's praying for God to, to, to step in and, and do whatever the Lord wants to do. Well, uh, last month, I see come across my, my Facebook feed, revival at Asbury. And I'm like, okay. And like I said, there was this fellow that's been there praying since 2016, and I know a lot of guys who would come in from other places in the country for, for intensive classes, and we'd be in class together, and they'd say, yeah, I just really feel like the Lord's going to do another, another move of the Spirit, because that's happened in, at the college multiple times since uh, the 1920s, usually about a week long. And it has serious impact, you know, across Methodism and some of the other mainline denominations. Um, well, I start seeing on my feed... Revivals come to Asbury. It's, it's not even 24 hours yet. I'm like, okay, well, you guys had a long, long chapel service. <laughs> I, come out of, I come out of Pentecostal churches. That's, 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 we wouldn't even start a corner that yet. Yeah, it's not revival yet. We just had a good service. <laughs> We're still there, you know, the next morning. Like, we didn't even go home, man. So-and-so laid out underneath the power and got back up and was healed. I mean, that was just, that was, that's how, if we were going to kick off a good week-long revival, like I would start it with a watch night, and that goes back all through Christian history of watch nights from the gospel, from the Gethsemane. Could you not keep watch with me for an hour? And so you would kick things off with a watch night. Wesley does this, and the Methodists do this in the 1700s. The Anglicans do this, I should say, uh, at the time, because there's no difference yet. Uh, but we would kick that off, and people get healed, and nobody's touching anybody. Just a real thick, manifest presence of God in, 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 the, in the church in the houses. Anyway. Um, Day three, day four, day five. And at that point, the social media buzz for the college got so big that people started driving in from all over to go down to the services. And the services were essentially, for those who didn't see it on their Facebook feed, um, people singing. The college, the, 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 the college was, wor the student body was at worship. And it was, I want to say day three or four, that's when some of the seminary professors were going across the street and I say across the street, I mean literally, you know, 25-foot street. You walk across the road and you're on the other campus. And that's when they were saying, yes, there was just a sweet presence of the Lord, and I rested there in my seat. And everything that I've seen from my friends who've been out there and who were there for a little bit because I wanted to go and, but couldn't make it, is that a lot of the Gen Z generation, a lot of these kids were repenting of their sins they were worshiping the Lord from the depths of their heart, and they were praying for his discernment. And because there's such a spiritual hunger 
amongst revivalistic Christians around the planet, people descended upon that little town so much so that after a couple of weeks, the town could not facilitate it. And so when you look at some of the video footage of people just standing out in the quad, they're standing out in the front yard, they're standing on all the green spaces. I mean, the, the, all of the chapels and then extra, the gymnasium and the seminary were converted into prayer, prayer centers. The local churches in town were prayer centers. People were just praying and seeking the Lord and testifying to his presence. I don't, I don't, it doesn't, in a certain sense, it doesn't matter whether that's a revival awakening or an outpouring. I realize that for the purposes of discussion and classification, you know, that those are important. But in a very real way, people seeking the Lord like that, that is good. And, and those kids who have not had, excuse me, not had any real sense of personal inner conversion that God is real need that. And so I, I praise the Lord that my dear friend uh, who flew over from Malaysia persevered in prayer when people would beep their horns at him and not believe, like, just get off the sidewalk, man. He persevered in prayer, and there's been this wonderful outpouring of God's presence upon these people who have been seeking his face. And I think that the college made one of the best decisions I've ever seen when it comes to revival, revival meetings. They shut down the live feeds. And they shut down access to the meetings to the public. That is an exceptionally wise decision. They did not let the, the professional revivalists come on site. They didn't let people come in and try to take over the meetings. They just let these kids worship. Now, yes, the worship is primarily singing. And that's good. If this is all that it generates, well, then, then you've got a different challenge. You've got something else you've got to work through. But this in and of itself can be the catalyst, and it will be the catalyst for some of these students to walk away knowing that they met with the Lord in a very special way. I thought they ended it really well because you talked about how it started. And it, it started with people seeking discernment and direction. And how do they end it? Then shutting out pretty much everyone who was old. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, for lack of a anybody that was over college age, um, and but they were still opening it to even like high schoolers. Yeah, and I, I think they, the leadership there discerned properly of what was happening. Was it was a time for uh, a generation who had really I think out of everyone who took the hardest hit during COVID. Oh yeah, I think developmentally we're still going to see the effects of that for the next you know, 30, 40 years. Oh yeah. They yeah. took the hardest hit. Right. And realized, listen, they need this. Like y'all go back to where you came from, but these students need this because they need to hear from the Lord because the healing needs to begin and the healing needs to happen. And I thought that was that, that, that um, discernment that they made there 100% right on yeah. where it should have been. Yeah. Because at the core, I mean, because at the core of all this stuff, like as we defined revival in the beginning, but obviously life itself and grace itself comes from the hands of the Lord. Right. It's not something that we can take it and hold it in our hands and stick it in our pockets. Right. Right. And so many people, even with the most positive ideas come in thinking, okay, well, how can I, how can I hang on to this idea, this particular sensation of revival so I can profit off of it? And that's exactly what would have happened if they had let other people on site, 
is that they would not have shut it down and gone back to classes, which is, it's a college. It's designed mm -hmm. that you're supposed to be getting an education, getting formation for your life. They would have found a way to market it and to start bringing in more high powered speakers and to create something that it was never supposed to be. It's, it's the Mount of Transfiguration. It's good that we're here, Lord, let's build three tents. No, let's not. Let's receive the grace that God's trying to give us and then continue to go with the regular mandate that he has also given us, equally given us. Um, when this started to spread to the other campuses and churches of people praying and seeking the Lord, again, that's great. We have to be careful with the terms like revival and awakening because as we said a little bit ago, you get a group of people together that will, that will worship from their heart. And we call that lively faith, by the way, in, in the 39 articles. You worship from the heart, whether you're singing or not, but you worship from the heart. You're going to have a lively experience with the Lord. We are human beings and we have emotions. Yes. Our emotions need to be governed by the Spirit. Otherwise, we go off into the passions and we confuse the Holy Spirit with our own desires. They made some good calls here. And then, then let, me, let me conclude comments about that with this. In some ways, it reminds me of, and I share this with the church here, it reminds me of when the crowds would come around the Lord to be healed or to see manna come from heaven. Although, as far as I know, there were no miracles of any kind uh, in the supernatural sense taking place at Asbury. Just repentance, which is itself a work of the Spirit. Um, but the crowds would gather around the Lord to see the miracles. And everybody wanted to be around him. Everybody wanted to feel his presence, as it were. I mean, they trampled themselves in one account in the Gospels, trying to get near to him, to touch him. Until he started to speak. And when he started to preach, and when he started to teach, is when they would get offended, and they would leave. So, what we want to pray for all of these Gen Z kids who have not ever had a real vibrant experience with the Holy Spirit, they equally have probably not been rightly discipled across the country. I'm not talking just now about, about Asbury. I'm talking about across the country. They haven't been discipled in the doctrine and the liturgical forms of the church. And it is dangerous for people to have an experience, even when they're experiencing the Lord, if they don't move into the church, into the ark of safety, as it were, to get discipled, they will later on either deny that that experience happened or they'll take that experience and translate it and define it on the basis of some other antichrist philosophy. So we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to pray that people, as they're having these experiences, that they also then come under the good instruction of the word and recognize that the God who began the work in them will finish it. So are revivals and awakenings and outpourings good? Biblically, they can be very good. They can also be like the reforms in the days of Josiah. And Jeremiah had a whole lot to say about that. I mean, as a whole, we follow the idea of semper referendum, right? Always no, reforming? Re reformandum. Reformandum. Not reform. Not <laughs> Hold on, let me say this one more time. <laughs> Semper referendum. Messing it up. See, this is why I use English translation, because I know I, I, I don't know these languages that are dead. 
Semper Reformanda, always reforming. Yes, Semper. <laughs> Semper Reformanda. Yes. There, there we go. go. We're always reforming. We're always reforming. So in the Anglican communion, we are always reforming constantly to what the apostles have given. Which is not restorationism. Right, right. We're not, because yes, it didn't die. Yes, what I'm happened not. is the form grew, the vine grew in a way that wasn't healthy. So you got to prune that vine. Yes. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I'm just saying within that healthy reformation, there's always pockets and moments of revival within them that come from the Lord. Like there's healthy pockets. I, I would it. say... I would say healthy pockets. That's how I would your, describe your prin that. The principle, I, I think you're right. Uh, it's it's uh, the book of Acts. When Peter says, repent, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. And that refreshing is different in every place when it happens. So <clears throat> I think that wraps up our discussion today on revival and the Great Awakening and some of the Asbury happenings this past year. If you have any further questions or... Yeah, like, look, Josh, if people send us questions about the, the outpouring in Korea or the Welsh revival or the stuff going on in Argentina a few decades back, there are so many different spiritual renewal and revival movements in the Christian church. We cannot possibly begin to talk about them yes. in however long this episode is. Oh, yeah. Send the ones in the Welsh Revival. I love talking about the Welsh Revival. That's uh, that's one of my favorites. For sure. So if there's any further questions about some of these things, maybe some of your own feedback, you can send that to Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, at ascensionwv.org. And that's all. I'm Joshua. I'm Adam. And I'm Daryl.